Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, we want to go back to John chapter 1. As you know, last week, uh, we basically took a week off for John, and we laid out, you know, Operation Remnant. And now you all have a, a good idea and know, understand all the six new areas of ministry that we have basically, in the time that we're dealing with, adapted and adjusted to uh, during uh, what is probably the greatest change in our country and probably the world that most of you have ever seen in your young lives, if you're uh, under 100 or so. But anyway, and for us, it's utilizing, you know, all of our available assets. And we've talked about this week after week after week, the opportunity during this time of, of an open door. You know, one of, one of the fundamental keys of good leadership you know, and I talk about this all the time. It's just—it's not just to see the opportunity, but it's the ability not only to see the opportunity, but then to seize the opportunity, take advantage of it. And, uh, you know, during this time of change in every part of our life, you know, I wanted to, uh, you know, take an, uh, and help our people during this time, and yet, at the same time, I never want to lose sight of our fundamental goal here, and that is to develop you up the chain of command, so to speak, uh, to a place of, 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 of true leadership in a biblical sense. You come at your own pace. Nobody forces you, but uh, always the opportunity there, and I'm constantly looking for young men and young ladies that really uh, have that ability, uh, young couples, midlife people that are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, always a, it's always a challenge, and it's always a blessing to see how that God, you know, does that in our lives. So we talked about six areas, uh, and I laid each one out last week. We talked about our Bible Institute, which is going back into effect at the end of the month. That is so crucial in, uh, in its own way of helping you get to a point in your life where you really understand. We do more than just teach the Bible. We teach leadership skills. We teach ministry skills. You know, it's, a, it's a, an adaption of everything in, that we learn putting back into, you know, our daily life and what we do. We talked about Operation uh, Lifeline, and that is taking our prayer groups that was upstairs for number of years, and then, because we can't do that anymore, going online with those and opening that up to, um, to everybody uh, in our church that legitimately, you know, can't be here because of their age or illness or uh, pre-existing conditions or whatever. And then we opened it up to all of our family out there on the YouTube, some 900 people who follow us on a regular basis. And I, I must tell you that the the uh, the response has been overwhelming. And uh, if you're out there listening to us this morning, again, thank you for being here. But if you don't have a church, or even if you do, and you want to fellowship with us in this church, we have now put together a way for you to do that. And all you have to do is, is email me or call me, text me, whatever. And uh, my email is alexander1611 at sbcglobal.net. And I'll get you on a team. And we've had some... 30 or 40 people that uh, it's just, they're coming out of the woodwork. And uh, it's so good to see these teams up and beginning to move forward with this. And, you know, and I, I, I tell you this too, uh, you know, 
I know some of you have kept your prayer groups from before and kept in touch. Where we're going now and what we're doing now supersedes all of that. Uh, we're going to have to put all of our eggs in one basket here, and this is going to be a lot of work for a lot of people. So it's a whole new world for us. So all the old prayer groups are pretty much gone now, or should be. And, uh, you know, we're going to work together as we build this thing together. You know, and, and some people have moved on, and, you know, that's, oh, that's a good thing. And now, you know, they have their own church, and uh, they need to be part of that, support that. They don't need to be part of what we're doing. They need to get in and take what they've learned and, and, and really make a difference where they are now got their little church together. So that's a good thing, too. But uh, Operation Outline truly has been an absolute incredible thing. Then we have our Timothy project. I went back there this morning and looked and other uh, places got all our little guys and gals back there and that's so exciting. And my leaders back there, my, my singles teaching that. Then we got our craft class and I know a craft class probably doesn't look much in comparison to Bible Institute or Operation Lifeline but you could be never more wrong. That's one of the greatest outreach ministries we have on another level. And uh, the last time they did it, the place was packed, and they had a lot of great things, um, and we're excited about that. Our talk time ministry, where we're going to take the mothers who have young babies, and uh, that's moving along, and uh, that'll get up and get going here in the next week or so, and we're excited about that. That's another tremendous opportunity with young mothers that through this time can hook up with our young mothers who they can learn how they're dealing with it. It'd be a tremendous opportunity. And then we talked about our discipleship and our principal classes. I think I was probably a little confusing on that last week. Uh, you know, we have classes that, uh, that where people get discipled, and obviously they use principles in the scope of their discipleship. But then we have classes that are just purely teaching principles. And so those two are crucial. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're already in operation for the most part. And uh, it's a time where we always are discipling people here. And you know as well as I do that discipleship is nothing more than teaching principles within the scope of the discipleship lessons. But then we have times where we just give out the principles. Uh, and you can get a list of things and what you need in your life, and, and that's important too. So both of those are vital to this church, and I look at that as the upper echelon of training that uh, is really takes people to the, uh, the endless wherever they want to go with it because there's no end to that. So all of those things are vitally important and moving forward now. We just got to do it a little differently than we did it before. But nothing is going to stop us or keep us from getting where we need to go. Now today, you know, we will be back in John chapter 1 and we'll finish up our first section uh, of John, uh, which we have started now and been in it for a couple of weeks, verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. And this is what it says. It says, uh, and there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now, we have been talking about John and how that God sent him to the world to proclaim, in particular, the coming Christ, the Messiah to the nation of Israel. And John's famous line that we'll get to sooner or later is, Behold the Lamb of God, you know, which taketh away the sin of the world. He saw him. He 
ran six months in his ministry before Christ, heralding him to come to the nation of Israel and, of course, to the world. And I've spent a lot of time making the comparison to us from a practical standpoint in us being sent to simply somebody else's life. And we've used the example of Paul and Timothy, you know, and how that, that is a great model for us. Verse 6 says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And we've preached about that uh, quite extensively. And, now, and today I want to look at verses 8 and 9. And the Bible says that he would bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. That is the fundamental job of every one of us. So many times in the Laodicean mess that we're in today, we, we, we lose the real Bible definition of that. And, uh, you know, and I want to try to bring us back to that today if we learn anything out of this lesson. Now, verse 8 and 9 says that he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We, we love you so much, and we thank you, Father, for all that you do for us. Lord, we wouldn't know what to do without you. And Lord, truly, uh, you know, you are the guiding light and the shining light in each of our lives today and also in our church. We love you. We thank you for everything that you've given us, all that you do for us, your hand of protection upon us. We thank you, Lord, for the clear direction that, you know, the Lord, others may quit, others may stop, others may do whatever, but we have to move forward and we have to find a way. And, uh, Lord, we thank you for providing that for us. We love you. We thank you now and praise it all in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the, in, in these two verses here, I want to look at today we will find uh, the keys to answering the questions uh, that so many people ask about how God deals with men. And there's a lot of confusion on that today. You know, in Bible Institute, uh, which we're probably in the third or fourth year now and uh, probably got another 30, 40 years to go. But anyway, in the Bible Institute, I gave you originally when we started a set of rules on how to study the Bible and principles. And there are things that I put together in my own study over the years, and they've served me well. And, you know, I've given them out over the years many, 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 many times. But, uh, you know, I keep adding to them. I think there's probably 15 or 20 now. These are the fundamental things that you keep in mind when it comes to approaching the Bible to learn it. And one of them, one of them that I gave you was never to look at the Bible Never look at God. Never look at history. Uh, never even look at your own life from a Christian standpoint. And that is probably one of the most misunderstood uh, teachings anywhere in the Bible. You know, uh, the New Testament, the church age, is just a small part of what God is doing. I mean, the Bible runs the course in time of 7,000 years. But the church age only runs 2,000 years of that. And that is a very small part of what God is doing overall. But God's people today, because of their lack of understanding of the Bible, we have a tendency because of education today in Christianity and, and the churches that don't teach the Bible the way they should, we have a tendency to look at everything that God's doing from the standpoint of us being 
in New Testament Christianity. And I've told you many, many times, it's the mistake that Bible colleges make, that pastors make, and, and about 99% of God's people. And they look at everything that God has done, everything that God is going to do in the future. And because we live in the church age, that is our principal primary domain. We view everything from, from where we are at right now. And we think that God does it all down through history because he's doing it this way now. And, uh, you know, and I tell you, never view the Bible from a Christian standpoint, but always back up and view the Bible, including New Testament Christianity, from God's standpoint. The Bible is a roadmap of what God is doing, where he's headed, and his ultimate goal. And this fundamental mistake has led to more heresy uh, than you could ever imagine, and it leads to many false teachings. One of them is that we talk about all the time, is thinking that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are one and the same. And, you know, what a disaster that leads. And I will tell you right now, if you never get past that one concept and don't see it for the way it is, you're dead in the water when it comes to the Bible because the whole Bible is built around that. You know, it leads to the aspect that some guys teach that there's no dispensations in the Bible. You know, you take the word gospel, and because we find the word gospel and in our Christianity, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 defines the gospel in New Testament Christianity, we have a tendency that every time we read the gospel, the word gospel anywhere else in the Bible, that it has to be that same gospel. And of course, In the Bible, if you know anything about the Bible, there's five different Gospels by name themselves. Now, I know, Galatians, I hear it now, Galatians 1.9, you know, Paul said, if any man preach another Gospel, yeah, but you know what? You wouldn't know what to do with that verse to put it in the context of somebody put an AK-47 to your head. Your brains would be all over the wall before you'd ever find the answer. And of course, you know, you take the word church. Most people don't even know what the word gospel means. It means good news. And you take the word church, you know, and we think that, you know, you find the, you know, every time you find the word church, because we're a church, wherever you find it, that it's a church like we got. And yet they don't understand that the word church simply means called out assembly. Well, there's lots of called out assemblies in the Bible. Israel was a church in the Old Testament, but they weren't a church like ours. They're called the church in the wilderness. In fact, there's seven churches, and you know, in the Bible. And, but this is the thing. And then they get to the point where because of that, they think that when you get into Genesis chapter 6, you got the sons of God you know, are coming down and, and marrying the sons of men. And because they don't know what to do with the Bible, they have no clue. They think that, that Christianity now is all across everything. So they make the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, ignoring 40 other verses. They make the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 save men making un- marrying unsaved women. And, uh, you know, and where do you go with that? It leads to the whole aspect that everybody in the Old Testament was looking forward to the cross because we now look back to the cross. And that is the fundamental mistake that it, they all make simply because of the fact that they, they don't understand and they don't look at the Bible uh, the way God is what in what he's doing. And of course, uh, so today, 
you know, I want to step back and I want to see God's dealing with man in its true form as God lays it out through history and through the Bible based on the verse that, yes, he is the true light that lighteth every man that cometh in the world. But the question is, how does he always do that? It's going to be an interesting time today, and I hope that it's, we can have a little fun with it. But uh, now look at verse 8. It says that he was the true light. Um, excuse me. It says that he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Verse 7 says that he came to be a witness of the light that all men, and here's the key, through him. God wants to be the witness to the world through you. Most of God's people don't ever understand what that means. They want God to be a witness, but they want him to be a witness around them, not through them. And as I've told you, the story of John the Baptist will be yet another great picture of ourselves and God working through us. Now, the man sent from God, whose name was John, and we've talked about this before, I've told you, put your own name in there. There was a man sent from God whose name was you. And you are here to bear witness of the light that through you all men might believe. You know, being God's man or woman in somebody else's life. Now, maybe you can see my madness in, in Operation Remnant. You know, last week, uh, it's very obvious this week, that I accomplished my goal. I don't always tell you what my goals are in things. I, I you don't know that I need to. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. And, uh, you know, I had goals that I wanted to build into what I wanted to do last week with Operation Revenant because I understand what makes, in tough times, what makes Christianity work. I understand that when everybody is fleeing for the mountains, what it takes in God's people's lives are going to stay by the stuff and do the job. I understand that. And it's the pastor's job to be able to accomplish that. And how do you accomplish that? It's it's easy solution. And what I did last week, obviously throughout this week, and obviously with the with the parents putting their kids in the Timothy Project, obviously with the uh, uh, unleashing of so many people from the Internet and people in our own church and the people who are legitimately home, the over response has been overwhelming. And what I wanted to accomplish, because this is the key, not only to what we're going through now, but what's going to be coming our way. And the key is a simple key. It is simply this, getting you more excited about what God is doing in your life here than what the world is trying to do to you out there. And that's the key to success. Now, the problem with that is, in many people's lives, when God is not doing anything through you, then you can see where that, it, it leads itself to. And so there's a method in what I, my madness of putting that together with the six things because we're at a time where fear is the order of the day between God's people. I'm sorry. Everybody is hiding under the rock instead of being part of the rock. And we're living in a day and age when Christianity is running with its tail between its legs down the road like a dog that just got scalded with a hot bale of water. And I'm telling you, you are better than that. 
And I am not going to stand by, and I, and I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning, but I'm not going to stand by and just let this world continue to die and go to hell because we're afraid. And at the end of the day, you know, that fear will only dissipate as you get more excited about what God is doing through your life. The impact you're making in somebody else's life that overrides the fear of the world of, of uh, that, and, and the fear of the world is always going to be there. If it isn't what we're going through right now, just hang tight. It'll certainly be what's coming. And, you know, Operation Lifeline, Timothy Project, you know, the tiny, teeny, tiny tots, uh, tater tots, I like them that way. And, you know, the craft ministry, the discipleship and, and, and principles ministry. Without a doubt, you know, people have gravitated to that. And I told you they would because many of these people out there that are subscribers, some 900 of them who follow us, they don't have a church. They don't have anything that they can go, they can go to. We are the only lifeline they have. And let me just say, I apologize. We've been having tremendous issues with our website. You know, that little circle thing going around. And we're working on it. We had them here last week. We're going to have them again. The guys back there are the greatest guys in the world. They're doing everything they can. So they're going to come back and probably it looks like we're going to have to get a new modem. I have no idea what a modem is, <laughs> but we're going to get a new one probably. I, I, I used to take it when I had a headache, so I know it works. Anyway. And without a doubt, you know, all the people that uh, it's incredible. You're going to have, uh, and this is exciting for me, you, whatever level you're on, as we move through this, you're going to have more people to work with and disciple and to teach the Bible than you could ever imagine. Because you know as well as I do, once you get into a prayer group with people and you start working with them and you start building relationship with them, you know where it goes. There isn't anybody in this church that ever started Discipleship One that didn't take you probably a year to finish it. You know why? Because people have questions. They have issues. And there's times and you know that you never got through a lesson because they had something else they wanted to talk about. It's got to go the same way. This is not only great for them and the people out there, it's great for all of you. Because whatever level you're on, Wherever you're at, you can have as much as you want. Nobody's going to stop you. And you can take it and go with it as much, as deep as you want to go. And, of course, it's your decision, but it's, it's what it is. And, uh, you know, when this thing gets moving and, uh, you know, you're about to see the reality of what I told you last week, that out of confusion, God always brings clarity. Out of fear, God will bring courage. And out of chaos, God will bring order. And out of change, God will always bring opportunity. You see it, and then you seize it. And uh, it's no accident that Claudia, you know, opened up all those videos for us or those DVDs for us. You know, it's a beginning there again, God giving us different dimensions. He'll give us everything that we need. And that's the key. My job and your job is to bear witness of God's light to the world. And now how do we do that? You know, the common thought today uh, in the thinking is it that we think that our witness to others is about what we say to people. And obviously we call that witnessing. 
my old friend Greg McClintock, who is down in Florida, I think, right now, and uh, he, uh, we stay in touch, and him and I have been together for many, 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 many years, and he really, he's pastored a couple of churches. He worked, in fact, we all went up to one of his churches there, did a revival, and the Old Path Boys went. We had a great time. And uh, he used to say, every Christian had a witness, and sometimes they should even use words. And, of course, his point being that we go around and we tell people what God will do for them, you know, and all of that. And, you know, I understand that. But that's an unfortunate trap of the Laodicean church age. In the Bible, you'll find the word conversation. It's like how it's used in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible, we know this, will be its own dictionary. And in the Bible, the word conversation back then in its purest form was not just what you said, but it's connected with the lifestyle that you live because the Bible takes the position. I'm sorry. The Bible takes the position, not popular today, but the Bible takes the position, hello, that you ought to live what you say and say what you live. You see, the real witness of God's light won't be just telling people what God will do for them. That's easy. And the reason why most people do that today is because and miss the real light working through them because it's not about you telling somebody what God will do for them. It's about you telling somebody what God has done for you and then allowing them to see the difference. What is the evidence in your life that what you're telling them even works? I mean, you tell them to get saved and all their problems, but you've got so many issues in your own life that you've not solved. It's almost like, well, maybe it'll work for you, but it didn't work for me. You see, that's what we do today. That's what Christianity is today. It's a lot easier to just point your fingers and say, this is what Christ will do for you, than point those fingers back and say, but I want you to look at my life, what he's done for me. And your witness will be simply about three areas of your life. It's not very complicated. First of all, it'll be your walk with God. What he's doing with you. That they can actually see that you are separated from the world. The average church today, they're not separated from the world. They, they believe in social drinking. They think it's okay to be part of the world. Their music is, is like a halftime show at the Super Bowl. I mean, they, 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 they embrace everything in the world, and yet they'll stand in the pulpit and tell people that Christianity will make a difference in your life. A difference from what? The second thing will be your family ministering with you. And I understand some of you came in here and your family, you know, had already, uh, you know, turned a corner the wrong way. And, but yet you can even use that because as long as you're following the Bible and doing what it says to reach them, you can even use that as a testimony. So many times I find so many preachers that have lost their kids. And they're some of the greatest preachers that you could ever hear. And as far as I'm concerned, the reason why they, they excelled so well in preaching is because they were trying to cover up the failure of losing their family. And so they put the emphasis on preaching, soul winning, 
people doing all this. And I, I thought to myself many, many times, if they would have put half the time into their kids, as they do trying to put out to everybody else what God will do for them. But you see, all they can ever do is tell people what God will do for them because they can't never show people what God hasn't done for them. It's a game today. We make it the, you know, America, the, everybody's dying because of no next stimulus check, you know, and, and the reason why, you know, the government's not coming in because in Washington, they're playing games. They don't care about you. They want to win an election. And they're not going to do anything to help you that's going to hurt them in what they want to accomplish. And we look at that and we think how wicked that is and how bad that is. But you know what? God's people play the same games. When they do it in a political theater, we do it in a religious theater. We claim to be a church that stands for the truth, yet we don't stand for the truth. We claim to have principles in our life and values, but yet they're the same values of the world. We'll get up and preach a message on separation with one beer or a glass of wine in one hand and, uh, you know, the music of the world in the other. And, and, and we operate that way and get away with it that way, and I don't, don't take this wrong, but because God's people are so stupid. They've lost the aspect of a holy life and a separation from the world. And we do that, and the end result is that now when we witness, we can never tell anybody what God has done for me to show them the example. You just have to tell them what God will do for you and cross your fingers and hope it worked because it didn't really work very well for me. And that's where we're at today. And it's a shame. It's a shame. It's really a shame. The real witness of God's life won't just be telling people what God can do for them, but rather what God has done and is doing for you. I think in Romans chapter 12, and I may be wrong here, but I think in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, it's called a living sacrifice. And it's what you're telling them about God's evidence in your own life that you are a living testament to the fact of the New Testament that the principles in the book line up with your life. And I know nobody's perfect. You're going to screw up. You're going to mess up. You're going to blow it. We all do. But even in that's a good thing in some respects because it can show you, show somebody that, you know, uh, that the fact that even though you can mess up, you can get it right and redeem the time and move on. So, you know, it all works if you just use it. And your witness will be just in those three areas. And this is where Proverbs chapter 31, you remember our great study in Proverbs chapter 31 where it talked about the virtuous woman that made a portion for her household first and then the others. Completely lost today. That's why 99.99999% of pastors, Christians, and their ministries is all about putting out what God will do for you. There wasn't a one of them that could stand up and say, look what God's done in my life. Past me. Their family's in a closet someplace. Their marriage is in a closet someplace. Now, verse 9 says that he was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So a couple of things I want to touch on here as we look at this. First of all, the true light versus the false light. 
I've told you many, many times, certainly through the Bible studies and through the Institute and other places, that this all starts in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the defining of the road signs down through church history. And we see in the book of Acts very clearly two lines developing. We really see it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, before we go four verses, that the Bible says that God divided the light from the darkness. So from that point on, you know that everything in the Bible and everything in the world is going to revolve around a true light and a bad light, a true line and a bad line. So it's no surprising you find God's Bible in history and the devil's Bible. It's no problem you find God's church and the devil's church. And that's been, a, that's been a key thing all the way down through the book of Acts that defines church history. Everything in history, especially church history, but you can take the history of the world, the history of America, and it'll all come down to that one concept, a true line and a false line, a true light and a false light. Then verse 9 will answer the age-old question that skeptics and a lot of good God's people that are young and they want to learn, they'll ask for you and you'll get this sooner or later. And it's the old question that you get when you try to witness to somebody and they don't want to get saved. But on the other hand, you'll get it from a lot of good, sincere God's people who just want to, and they always ask, well, what about the heathen in Africa? What about the heathen in Africa? And you see, it's complexing to us and we ask the question, how does God reach people who have no church who have no preacher, who have no missionaries, who have no choir, who have no evangelists, who have no 15 standards just as you were without one plea. That's the military version. The Christian version, just as I am. But in the military, it's just as you were. (laughs) I mean, think about deep, dark Africa. Think about deep, Central America or South America. Think about Australia with the Aborigines over there. Think about how God got the gospel to them. Did he? I mean, I mean, how, how does God reach people with enough availability that we have today? And then I've heard it said, you know, well, how does God judge those people if they've never had the truth? And you see, when a guy says that, he's saying that from his position in New Testament Christianity. There's a church in every street corner. There's a thousand Bibles in everybody's house. Nobody reads them. But, but all of the things that we have, you can't, you turn on Sunday morning or Joel, or Joel guy. You, you turn on this, you got this guy. You get on the internet, you got a thousand guys. We got it all. So we live in that and we get so, I think the word is occupational dominancy. You think that what's around you is the only way God could possibly do it because that's how he did it for you. That is a very limited thought process on God. And that is clearly looking at everything that God is doing through the New Testament that we live in. Now, let me just state the obvious because I love being the master of the obvious. Verse 9 says that he, uh, he will light every man that cometh into the world. No, that's a true statement. We don't have to fiddle with that verse at all. So the issue here is not will he or won't he, but rather how he does what he says he will do. Now let's, let's start here and, you know, and talk about this for a minute. Down through the Bible and the history of man, 
God's glory, and God's glory will be Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand that. God's glory uh, has been revealed to man basically four ways. And you need to see this and understand this, and then we'll put it into a practical work application for you. First of all, obviously, is the Word of God. We know that the Word of God reveals Jesus Christ and reveals the glory of God. But not everybody down through history had the Word of God, and not everybody has the Word of God today. The second one is Jesus. You know, uh, he comes in the New Testament, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he's revealed there. But you got to ask yourself the question, you know, um, uh, Jesus' little expedition there in 30 uh, three years of his life and then three years of his ministry was only there in the Middle East. Nobody in Africa knew about it. Nobody in South America knew about it. Nobody in North America knew about it. Nobody in Canada knew about it. Nobody in China knew about it. It was all localized to one little spot. What about all them people? Then the third one will be man himself. And of course, we know that once the Bible begins to unfold itself in the Old Testament, we see God doing it through a nation, the nation of Israel, men and women. And then in the New Testament, we see God doing it through the church, you and me, today. Now, the fourth one will be found in Psalms 19, verse 1. And it says there that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. So the fourth thing that he will use in a man's life to show him God's glory will be the heavens that he created. Verse 2 goes on and says that day unto day utter his speech, night unto night showeth knowledge. So there's a language, and it says down there there is no speech nor language where uh, the voice is not heard. So it's a universal language that is put out during the day and during the night that a man who doesn't have a Bible, a man who doesn't have a church, a man who doesn't have a missionary or a preacher but yet the Bible says that God reveals himself. He's the true light that lighteth every man that this is what God does and how God uses it. Now, at any time in history and the Bible, God will use one, more, all of these, or whatever. But these are the four ways that he does it. And he says day and night. And he also says to the ends of the earth. Now, for a model of this and an example of this, of course, we would go back. You don't have to turn back to it. I'll just tell you about it. You're probably familiar with Genesis chapter 15 down around verse 5 where God was dealing with Abraham. And the Bible clearly tells us. Now, remember, Abraham has no Bible. Abraham's before Moses. He's not under the law. Uh, he, 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 he has no missionary. He has no radio program. He has no Old Past Baptist Church on the YouTube. He has none of that stuff. He couldn't even get old Joe Olstein. He can't get anything. But it's very clear that when God wanted to give him his salvation, or I should say his righteousness, that the Bible says that God took him out and showed him the stars. And it was through those stars and whatever conversation that they had that God revealed to him, and whatever he told Abraham, and I think you can probably pretty well piece it together from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, whatever he told Abraham had to do with the stars and his seed. Did you ever notice that it really didn't have anything to do with him? 
It had to do with the stars and his seed. And whatever he told him, it had to do not directly with just Abraham, but with his seed. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, I, I know, I, I, I've been around this all my life. I know, I know, I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. The, the average evangelical clown out there, and the average Baptist clown out there, they, they tarry too long at the wine keg. Uh, and they always say this, well, you know, what he did was is that God took him out, and in the stars he showed him the coming Christ. He showed him Christ dying on the cross. He showed him that, you know, then Abraham looked forward to the cross. He showed him all that God was going to do by showing him the cross and where God was going. And there's actually guys out there who believe that, who teach that. And I just must say to you, you got to, you, you, that is the dumbest, stupidest thing against the Bible you could ever say. Do you not know that Romans 16.25 says that the crucifixion, the church age, was something that was a mystery that God didn't reveal from the foundation of the world? Are you kidding me? So you think that God violated that and then lied about it in Romans chapter 16. Is that what you're saying? Romans 16 and other places tells you that it was never revealed what God was going to do. Abraham didn't get anything looking toward the cross. Abraham got something that concerned his seed. That's Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. It was a government. It was a kingdom. And of course, yet the Bible says, here it comes. Oh, this is where they get screwed up. Here, here it comes. And the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, that God preached the gospel unto Abraham. <laughs> so there you are. You see, when you're so stupid with the Bible that you think every time you've heard the gospel, it refers to you, your gospel. And don't understand that the gospel simply means good news. Don't you think that was good news to Abraham that God was going to make his seed like the stars of heaven and God took the time to lay out Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 that the government was going to be to no end? Now that's some good news to a guy like Abraham. So it's a gospel. But it's not the gospel of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that you and I got. That's Paul's gospel. Nobody got that according to Romans 16. Nobody got any insight on that until Paul showed up. See, the Bible's not a hard book. You just got to be smarter than subplant life. It's just tough for some people. Now, we, we get so locked up in the church age that we live in and viewing everything down through history from our standpoint. We forget that there's, what, 12 dispensations where God did things differently? And we, we lose sight of the fact that God gave his light. He gave it to men before the law. He gave it to men during the law, through the law. He even continued to give it through the 400 silent years, if you can read your Bible, because somebody got it during that time that showed up from the east, knowing where Christ was going to be born. They got the light someplace. Then he gives it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and then refines that light in the book of Acts. Then you get the light given to the New Testament church and then you get light given to the people in the tribulation period and you get a light given to the people in the millennium. Now, 
let's step, stop and think for a moment. Let's just put our thinking caps on, as your old third grade teacher used to tell you. Now, what about the rest of the world during this time? You know, the Bible never mentions America, North America, Central America, South America. Never mentions Canada. It never mentions Russia by name. It never mentions Australia. You can't find Greenland anywhere in there. You can't find the South Sea Islands, uh, the New Herbides. You can't find Guadalcanal. You can't find Okinawa. You can't find Japan. Um, you can't find any of it. What's going on? All Let's just take this one point in time. What's going on around the rest of the world when Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem and begins his public ministry, John chapter 1 here, for three and a half years? What's going on in the rest of the world? You see, it's hard for us to imagine because some of you are listening to this and you're in Holland or you're in France or you're in England. And all you got to do is click on the internet, hopefully, and here we are. But what about the first coming of Christ? Well, they didn't have that. What about the people over there that, that uh, are in places that, that Jesus never got to? And I want to tell you something else. The real first bona fide missionaries didn't even start till, what, 1,200 years after Christ? Did God just let all them die and go to hell? I mean, while he's established in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, does he just forget everybody else when he's dying on the cross and all of that? Is he just forgetting about North America, South America? What, he don't have a subscription to National Geographic? What was he doing? with man in the other parts of the world. Now, the Bible says that he's the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. We're going to take that at first value, at face value as truth. But how did he do that? Now, the Bible says over there in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 4 that the word of God, which is God, John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So they're one and the same. That he discerns the thoughts and intents of a man's heart. And it also goes on to say that every creature, every creature, now that word in the Greek, every, it really helped us. It means every. Every creature is manifest in his sight. Now, stepping outside our culture and the church age here, uh, we can see it uh, more clearly. Now, it's God's responsibility, God's obligation to reveal himself light to every man. We know that from chapter 1, verse 9. Where there is no church, there is no Bible, there is no witness, there is no missionary, there's no Christians, then he will, through his creation, allow man to see a glimpse of something that is bigger than he is. We already know from Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, that the invisible things of him from the creation are clearly seen and understood by the things that God made. We already know that the heavens declare the glory of God. We already know that by word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all of the host of them by the breath of his mouth, where he spake and it was done, he commanded and it stood still. We already know that the heavens and the word of God are one and the same.
And you also want to remember Romans chapter 2 verse 15 will tell us that God's law is already written on the tables of man's heart, whether he's lost or whether he's saved. So when God made man in the beginning and created it and all these people, indigenous people out there around the world, they may not have a missionary to work with, they may not have a church to work with, they may not have a Bible to work with, but they've got on the tables of their heart the Word of God written already. And we already know from our study in Proverbs, thinking back all the way to chapter 20, verse what, 27, that the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. So now we're getting a little picture of how God will do this. So God will deal with a man on his conscience through his spirit and test that man's attitude of heart about the light that God gives him. And if a man receives that light that God gives him in a measure, then God is obligated to give him more light. And then if he accepts that, then God gives him more light. And then it comes to a point between that man and God where God is satisfied with that guy and then God, like Abraham, works out the process by which God gives him his righteousness. You say, can you explain that progress process? Not in your life. I don't know how he does it. I just know that God does it on the basis of every man's attitude of heart, how he responds to the light. And I know that he's the true light that lighteth every man. So he gives that man light. When a man takes that light, then he moves forward. When he doesn't take that light, then he moves backward. I'll give you a good example. You got a guy that likes caves. I hate caves. I'm scared to death of getting in caves. I just, I'm not claustrophobic, but I just don't like caves. I've seen too many ca- movies where there's little guys in there that eat you. <laughs> so I, I hate caves. My worst experience with, I mean, I like going down to Branson and going to Marvel Cave because that's like going to a Holiday Inn. It's big. But you know they got places sealed off where guys went so far and, and, and laid that out that they actually had to squeeze through rocks with air tanks on underwater? You've got to be kidding me. We were one time down someplace, this is years ago, down in around uh, Branson or someplace, and we were staying at a camp, and they had a cave, but you had to crawl in on it. And you know, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I'm going to check this out, you know. And everybody said, no, you don't. And I, oh, I can do it. I wind in that cave, and I'm in there about, oh, I don't know, 60, 70 feet. And, and turned my light on and showed up, and the whole ceiling was covered with wasps. Yes, I am in the Guinness Bird record of backing out of a cave faster than any man on earth. That's done. I don't need to go in a cave, but I'm telling you. I don't know what that story had to do with what I was talking about, but I just think I just wanted to tell it. But anyway, you know, it's a thing where, oh, I know what it was. So here you are. You're, you're a guy in a cave. And you go way back in the cave here, you know, and you have your flashlight and you're back there. And, you know, it's easy to get lost in a cave. You go down and you go up. And then when you get way down there about two miles, your light goes out. And if you've never been in a cave with no light, it you can't see anything. I was down in South Africa one time, and they took us down into a, a, a diamond mine. And that diamond mine was four miles down. And it was shut down at that point in time, but they took us down there, and they took us down, and they showed us that they turned the lights off. And I'm telling you what it was, you couldn't see nothing. And you know what they do? So you can find your way out in case there's some kind of catastrophe, the light goes out. Up there is the air pipes, 
and all the bolts are facing one way. And so in the dark, you find that, and you find the end of the bolt, and that's the way out. Pretty ingenious. I mean, I wouldn't have thought of that. I'd have just put it up there with duct tape, and you'd have to find your way out. But anyway, you're down there, and your light goes out. You've been down there for two or three days. And man, you're getting hungry, and you're scared. And suddenly, way down that passage, way down there, you see a light. That light is moving towards you, and you know that that light is a rescue team coming to find you. You know what you do? You move toward that light because you want to get out of the darkness. You want that cave. You've had enough of it. And you're moving toward that light so you can get out of that cave, and pretty soon you match up and they take you out. Now, just reverse it. You just robbed the bank, killed nine people. You're driving along and you know they're after you, so you ditched the car, you got the money, and you found a cave, and you go heading back into that cave to hide out. You've been there now for two or three days, and suddenly you see a light, and you know they're coming after you, so you know what you do? You go farther back in the cave to get as far away from the light as you can. That's the way it worked here. God gave a man a light when he moved toward it, God gave him more light. He moved toward it. He gave him more light. Pretty soon they met. The unsaved guys, the people that don't want it, they see the light coming. They just go farther back in their darkness. It's simple. Somebody says, well, what about the heathen in Africa? What about the heathen in Kansas City? There isn't any difference. We think there's a difference because you're not wearing loincloths today, thank God. <laughs> you're, you know, they think it's a difference because you drove here today. You didn't walk. You think there's a difference because you're going to go get lunch this afternoon instead of going out and eating monkey. You think there's a difference because, you know, of our culture. There's no different. Human nature doesn't change if it's in downtown Kansas City, Washington in the White House, or down in the deep, dark part of Central and South America. It's just the way that it is. Man, and I want to tell you something. When God gives that light, you got to remember this, too. No young kid growing up or nobody who's never met with God in a, who, who's as dumb as a stump like people in a primitive lifestyle. They don't, they don't believe in evolution. They look up at the scar and the sky and night and they think there's somebody bigger up there and they wonder why. You've got to be educated out of the Bible to believe in evolution. Man's got to destroy that concept of God. It's like your family. Your kids didn't grow up where they're at now without God and drinking and running around and doing all they did. When they were young, they were pliable and workable. And, you know, you could have molded them any way you wanted them to go. And it's the same way. You get somebody over there that gets the light. He's got to be educated out of that light. And many times those guys, they just, they just go follow that light. I mean, did you ever see that this, most people miss this, down in the deepest, dark tribes of Africa, Central America, South America, where there's no, they've never seen a white man. When somebody kills somebody, they know that it's wrong. When somebody takes another man's wife, they know that it's wrong. When somebody steals, you know, in the African places, you steal one time, they tell you don't steal, you steal the second time, they cut your hand off, they kill, steal again, they cut the other hand off, you steal again, I don't know how you do that other than your teeth, but then they kill you. Now, these guys have no Bible, no truth, no, but they got a law. You know why? Because the law of God's written on their hearts. So every man forms the basis 
of right and wrong. And God uses that and he deals with them on that basis through the, the spirit and through their conscience. Now, for an example, let's take for a minute the American Indian. You have all kinds of tribes. You have the Sioux, you have the Cherokees, you have the Comanches, you have the Osage, you have the Blackfoot, you have the Shawnee, you have the Pawnee, you have the Crow, you have the Washington Redskins, you have all those groups. And, you know, and they're all out there. And back in the day, uh, you, had, you had peaceful tribes and you had terrible warlike tribes, just like today. Not really changed. I mean, uh, you, uh, you know, you, you get in this own city, you got the same thing. You got gangs roaming the streets. They're not the good guys. And you got people out there that are great people. Now, you're talking on the road at 2 o'clock in the morning and you're tire, flat star. Somebody may stop and help you. And that's great because there's good people still left in here. And, uh, you know, I remember just a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a couple of months ago, a uh, Barbie yelled down and said, there's a police officer at the front door. Well, you know, I'm thinking, all right, what did she do now? You know, that was my first thought. And so, no, I go up and it wasn't. It was a fireman. He was a captain. And he said, I, and I said, yes, sir, may I help you? And he says, yes, I'd like to talk to Robert Alexander. And I said, that's me. He says, could I see your driver's license? And I said, yeah, let me go get my wallet. And he said, never mind. He says, here's your wallet. What had happened was I went down to Quick Trip, which is five, six miles down 350. And my credit card didn't work, and it really ticked me off. And I lost I lost my senses. I burnt down three gas stations and it just went crazy. <laughs> but I, it wouldn't work and I was frustrated. And so I put the credit card in my pocket, but I left my wallet laying on the bumper of my Jeep, back tire. Got in and drove off. That wallet went all over the road, money flow everywhere, all my other stuff went out. And uh, some, a, a garbage truck guy, a garbage truck guy found it and turned it into this fire chief who brought it to my house. All the money was there. All my cards was there. Everything was just the way I found it. And I thought to myself, that's a good guy. And then the crash guy, that's a good guy. I wish I could have found those guys. You know, I'd have thanked them beyond belief. I mean, but you know what? But you know what? If the wrong guys would have found that, it would have been so long, senorita. I'd have been getting all these things from MasterCard about somebody buying, you know, uh, Chevy pickup trucks and everything, you know, and all that stuff. But I'm telling you, there's good people in the world and there's bad people in the world. And when you got the American Indians, some of those tribes were peaceful tribes. Some of them were not peaceful tribes. And yet, you know, the American Indian, they're like the black folks in my mind. They've gotten a bad rap down through history. I mean, the American Indians have just, I mean, they've been treated terrible. All history, all history portrays them as savages. Every Western you ever saw, you know, they're called redskins. And uh, they, 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 they circle the wagon trains. They scout people. That's got to hurt. What do you think I keep hair short for? I don't know if it ever goes back to that point. Zach, you're in good shape too. You just take your hat. But anyway, it's a thing where they got a bad rap. When we were kids growing up, you played cowboys and Indians. Cow Indians were always the bad guys. And of course, you know, you look at it and you see, you know, the movies, they always portray them as the bad people. 
And yet, you know, I'm telling you something. And it's a great truth that you ought to learn. The winners of history always get the right history from their perspective, and they get to decide who are the good guys or the bad guys. And obviously, when you win, you're one of the good guys. And that's the way it works. And yet, you know, they upset and get out of the Indians because they're killing the white man. And they're killing, you know, wagon train people coming west and killing all those people. And we make them out to be bad guys. But I want to tell you something. If someone broke into your house at 2 o'clock in the morning, would you just stand by or would you not defend yourself? You'd shoot him. Jamie had a problem last night out there. Somebody tried to break into her house, come into the garage, and she, she called the police and she said it took 15 minutes for the cops to get there. Well, you know a lot can happen in 15 minutes. And I fall back to rule number one of protecting your house. It may take 15 minutes for a 911 call, but it only takes 300 feet, 1,500 feet per second for a 9 millimeter. So you can, you, can, you can figure that one out for yourself. But I'm telling you, the white man was invading their land. That would that had been their land for, forever. And now we're coming in because we're Americans and we're going to take their land and we treat them terrible and they're defending themselves and because they defend themselves in their home like any of us would do, they're the bad guys, see? And that's fastly moving in your world. You remember that couple over in St. Louis that they were, they were going to try to burn down their house and threaten them and they came out with an AK-40 or AR-15 and a handgun and they got arrested. Never did anything to the people going to burn their place down. Took the governor stepping in and pardoning them. Praise the Lord for that. But I'm telling you, you know, for the American Indian, that was their home. The white man was breaking into it. You know, I love, I love history. And my, one of my, I've always wanted to go there, and I probably never will, but I always wanted to go to the little bighorn where Custer's last stand. Well, the only one I ever get to is the one on 291 out there where you get ice cream. That's <laughs> <laughs> as far as I've made it so far. But I, I tell you, that is, that's been an amazing thing to me. And, you know, there are some really good documentaries. You know, the idea in history is they were this brave, they fought. They died in 15 minutes or less. And if all the evidence they broke and started to run before they all got wiped out and massacred. It's an incredible thing. You know, I like to collect memorabilia from history and all that stuff. I was at a military show a couple of years ago, and I would have I'd have, I'd have died, but it was like two hundred thousand dollars. Back in nineteen ten, a guy excavated the Little Bighorn, and this is only—I mean, the Little Bighorn was in what eighteen seventy-six, so it was just twenty-some years after it happened, twenty, thirty years, and he must have had five hundred artifacts that he had dug up from that battlefield, and not just had them on a board. He had taken pictures of them finding it, and everything was documented with photographs. It was incredible. And I thought to myself, what a piece of history. And, you know, we look at that thing, but the truth of the matter is, you know, Custer went down there with 268 soldiers up against 5,000 Indians, and they massacred the 7th Cavalry. And, uh, you know, again, it was a fact where white men had broken every treaty with them that he said. And when the white man came in, he took their land from them and put them on reservations where they treated them terribly. They took away everything of dignity that they had. And, you know, they had enough. And so 
All of the tribes got together to try to defeat the white man. Of course, it didn't work, but that's how Custer got killed. And, uh, you know, and people get upset of that and they think, well, I just say this to you. Let's see how well you do when the next coming years, because of your stand in your Bible, you, you wait, you wait till the socialistic liberals take over this country. And I'm going to tell you right now, Bernie Sanders and his crew and the socialism, I'm going to tell you right now, people don't know anything about history. You go back to Lenin and Marx and those guys, they all were socialists. And I'm going to tell you right now, socialism is just a stepchild to communism. And that's where this country's headed. You look at Romania, you look at Russia, you look at, at, at all of those communist countries back in the 60s and the 70s. How did they take, how did they do that? How did they take over the world? How did Adolf Hitler take over all of Europe? And it's always the same. You know what they start? They start by taking your guns. How do you think the SS would have fared in Warsaw, Poland when he started rounding up the Jews if every Jew met him at the door with his family and was armed to the teeth? You know the first thing they did? Took their weapons away. You know the first thing the socialists are going to do when they get into power? They're going to take your weapons away. And if you don't think you won't wind up in a camp, you don't know much about history. America can talk about the German concentration camps all they want, and they were a horror, but America put them in concentration camps in 1948, 1947 before they got in the land. And don't tell me about concentration camps. We just like to call them internment camps. But during World War II, every Japanese American who their boys were fighting in, the, in, in Europe in a battalion uh, made up of Japanese for America, their moms and dads went into camps. Don't tell me right now when the illegals come across the border, and I'm not for letting illegals come in, but you know where they put them? In a camp. Give this thing another five, ten years if Jesus Christ doesn't come, and this thing goes south, and they take over, and they take away your guns, and they take away your Bible, and you don't want to give it up, and you're labeled a radical? See you in camp. <laughs> Maybe they'll give us a T-shirt. I went to camp, you know. <laughs> now, see, when you talk like that, it scares a lot of God's people. And somebody out there thinking, oh, yeah, that couldn't happen. Well, you hope it couldn't happen. I mean, it's happened all down through history, but you're so fearful. When I look at it, hey, I don't think it's a good thing, but you know what? This old world's not my home. Say, what will you do? I'll just find a camp ministry. Want to help me with it in camp? It, it, the whole world is changing. And so you, you see how that thing worked down through history. Now, I know this. Some of those tribes had a belief system. And I know history skews it all, and you can't get it right, can't see it. But you know, some of those, some of those tribes, some of those tribes, they reverence what they called a great white father. They reverence what they called the great spirit. Now, I don't know how you can get that out of Matthew chapter 17, Revelation chapter 1, or Revelation chapter 19, because those are the exact same two titles the Bible gives God and the Holy Spirit. How did they get that Bible truth? I mean, when they went out on a hunting party, they killed a deer. 
You know what they did? They laid that bow down or whatever they killed it with and got on the ground and thought the great white father for bringing that deer to them for food for their family. And some of God's people will run out of here this afternoon and go eat someplace and you'll stuff your face with food and never one time thank God for it. And they're the heathens? I mean, they go out on hunting parties. We, our guys do that all the time here. Deer season come around in November. Oh, man, they all go, got their little camps. They go down there, which I think is the greatest thing you can have is a fun time. But I'll give you a little key. If you want the key in the Bible to good deer hunting, it's in Genesis chapter 27, verse 3. Just throw that out to you. The Bible even covers your deer hunting days. And when a white man showed up, on the East Coast around, what, 1628, somewhere in there, a tribe from what is now Oregon called the Nazpec tribe came 2,000 miles to the white man to ask him if they had the book that told the story of the son of the great white father. And some of God's people today won't drive 20 miles to come to church. What about the heathen of Africa? What about the heathen in Kansas City? There's no difference. Now, the greatest example of this is Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch in the Bible and how God gave him the light back in his country. And you don't get any details on this because God doesn't want us to know. He just wants us to know and believe the verse, but he doesn't. Somehow, he gave light to this Ethiopian eunuch and then somehow he gave him a page out of Isaiah chapter 53. And then this guy is traveling to Jerusalem under the wrong pretense because he's heard back in his own land how that the Queen of Sheba went to see Solomon. He thinks it's still in place. And it was God who interjected him and intercepted him and gave him Philip. You know why he did? Because that man followed the light that God gave him and it was God's obligation to get him the truth. He wasn't running back in the cave. He was running toward the light. And God will deal with every man in his spirit, in his conscience. And it will give that man light as he, as he goes. And to some point, God is satisfied with that. Then he will deal with that man however he chooses to deal with it. And like Abraham, will give him his righteousness. It's just the way that it the models in the Bible. Because he is the true light, the light of every man that cometh into the world. Now, at any point, just like today with us, if a man rejects the light of God, and God is not obligated to give him any more light. You see, we think because we live in America that all these chances you get to get saved is the way God does it. That's grace, and that's the way it works. But you want to know the bottom line with God, he gives you the light one time, and you reject it. He is not obligated to give it to you again. Now, thank God that he does, but he doesn't have to. Now, that's how he does it. God is light. That's understanding. The light shineth in darkness. And God will always have a witness of that light, and it will always be a remnant. And right now, in our day, we are, we are that witness. We are that remnant. And it doesn't matter what or how uh, the world changes, society changes, or the way of life changes. Real Christianity real Christians will always see the opportunity, seize the opportunity, and focus on the opportunity and not the opposition. The world's going to change. Society is going to change. Life is obviously changing. But I got some good news for you. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and praise the Lord for it.
We get shut down one way, we'll just find another way. Uh, real truth will always find a way. You'll lose some people, that's okay. That's biblical too. John chapter 15, 2 says that you have to go through a purging to continue to grow. I mean, it's just the way that it is. You don't get an attitude about it. It's the biblical process. Every state park and every federal land game management understands the same issue of turning out the herd. So the herd will keep going. Every landscaper and tree guy in this city understands that process, that you got to trim it back to get more fruit. You see, fear and confusion have no part in Bible-based ministry. It just doesn't. Why? Because perfect love casteth out fear, 1 John 4, 18. And God is not the author of confusion, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 33. Because a real witness of God's life, not telling people what God will do for them, but showing them by their own life and their example and everything in their world what God has done for you. This is why I'm interested in building powerhouse families. This is why I'm interested in people getting back if they've lost their kids, a process to be able to get that back. This is why I'm interested in taking all you young couples and training you and giving you everything you need so you can move on forward. And when you have kids, as many of you are, that that unbroken chain begins to go through your life because you have no real witness without it. You're just a Laodicean Christian that goes around telling everybody what God will do for them because he has done nothing for you. And of course, simply being more excited about what God is doing in your life than the fear of the world is for today. And today, for the most part, Christianity is just an empty witness. Ah, you got a million of them out there. But it's all about what God will do for them, not what God does for you. And yet I want to, I thank God for the remnant. I thank God for the 900 people on our website out there who faithfully, watch us and support us. And, and uh, this is their church. They send their tithe into us because this is where their church is because they can't find one out there. I get it. I understand it. But now God has opened up the greatest opportunity we have that we can minister to you, be fellowshipping with you and our own people here, and then helping you do a better job wherever you're at. And we just reach them that way. You become our missionaries. You become the people that are extended out of us that we can, we, can, we, can, we can continue to do what God wants us to do. This thing never stops. And there's, you don't have to worry about social distancing. You don't have to worry about coronavirus. You don't have to worry about all of that stuff. But I want to tell you, there's bigger things coming you're going to have to worry about. And I'd say today, just so you would know and understand, the vineyard here is in great shape today. God took chaos and gave us order. He took confusion and he gave us clarity. And he took fear and he gave us courage. And he took a change in lifestyle that produced opportunities. And we all had a choice. Everybody has a choice. Across this country, across this city, even in our own church, everybody has to make their own choice. And I totally understand that, get that would never criticize you for your choice. I, that's between you and the Lord, but I just know this. I didn't start this church to end it in fear. I didn't start this church to fold it up because society now is changing and what are we going to do? We will find a way. We have found a way. The same God that led us here 
The same God that got you through your life and saved you, the same God will take you home if you'll just stay with the same book that got you here. And that's what we're going to do. Well, we'll hold up there.